This is episode 29 of Cinescope, and they should make pills for this. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the podcast today is Eric Skoll to talk about one of his favorite films, Serendipity. Eric, how are you doing tonight? Good, man. Uh, it's great to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. You know, it. one of the things that I never would have expected with this podcast was one to get one of the people from the podcast I'd been listening to for nearly a decade onto my show. And further than that, to actually become friends with that person and to have regular contact with that person. So since you appeared on episode three, where we talked about frequency, we've we've talked quite a bit. We've Snapchatted each other. It's been a real cool time. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. And it's I, the way to my heart, um, as as you know, because you did it, uh, is just to invite me to talk about a movie that I love because I love movies. So uh, as we found out the first time, but uh, but I, I'm thrilled to be back Valentine's week this year to talk about my favorite romantic movie, which I verified because, you know, in rewatching, I, it, it had been a while and I wanted to make sure that it was in fact still up there. And, and yes, it's, I, I, I can contest I, that this is in fact my favorite romantic movie. Yeah. I had seen it before and we'll talk about that in just a second, but just to remind people out there, who are you? What do you do? Where can people find you? Sure. Uh, I am Eric Skull. I currently live in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, you may recognize my voice if you've listened to uh, a couple of podcasts throughout the years. I'm currently on MuggleCast, uh, which is celebrating its 11th, or actually going on 12th year uh, on the air, and that's a Harry Potter podcast, uh, as well as another Harry Potter podcast called Alohomora. And also, I edit the Improvised Star Trek podcast, uh, which is absolutely amazing. You should go and check it out. It's a long-form improvised comedy set in the world of Star Trek. Uh, it's a blast, and I have a lot of fun doing it. Awesome, and I'll make sure uh, to give you time to plug those again later, and those will be in the show notes as well, so people can find them. Yeah, that's what I'm up to. Uh, other than that, I'm really just enjoying uh, the the winter, getting a lot done and feeling very productive. You know this, Eric. I am not feeling at my absolute best this week. <laughs> Poor dude. I've been uh, battling probably what I think is convention plague after visiting San Antonio this past week, and I got some good root beer at my favorite San Antonio restaurant, but since then, it's just uh, not been a fun week for me. But I'm ready to power through. I watched this movie earlier today, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. Yeah, for sure. Now, before we do talk about it, our typical reminders every week, please, if you like the show, please consider uh, taking a minute or two out of your day, rate and review it on iTunes, subscribe to it on iTunes. And other than that, if you've already done that, then go ahead and share it with your friends on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever, wherever you see fit. If you have friends who like movies and would benefit from listening to our show, then please consider sharing it with them so we can continue to grow. And I think that's all uh, as far as covering our bases this week. So, Eric, are you ready to talk about our movie? I'm ready, man. Awesome. 
This week's movie is Serendipity. It was released on October 5th of 2001 and was directed by Peter Chelsom, who also directed Town and Country, Shall We Dance, Hannah Montana the Movie, Hector and the Search for Happiness, and most recently, The Space Between Us, which just came out last year, I believe. It was written by Mark Klein, and the music was by Alan Silvestri, who's one of my favorites. He is most frequently known as the collaborator of Robert Zemeckis, so the Back to the Future films, Who Framed Roger Back Rabbit. To the Future. Yes, yep. sir. <laughs> and uh, outside of his work with Zemeckis, he did Predator 1 and 2, The Abyss, Father of the Bride 1 and 2, Stuart Little, Lilo and Stitch, Night at the Museum, and its sequel, Battle of the Smithsonian. Captain America, the first Avenger, the Avengers, and is set to compose the scores for the upcoming Avengers sequels, Infinity War and Avengers 4. Yay is. <laughs> uh, yeah, looking forward to that for sure. Quite a quite a body of work, actually. And uh, yeah, I I love Sylvester. Me too. I, I love how diverse he can be. Uh, especially showcased by this film. Uh, you know, not to get too much into it now, but. This does not sound at all like some of his other stuff, which is is great. It's I think it perfectly fits this movie. Agreed. This movie stars John Cusack, Kate Beckinsale, Molly Shannon, Bridget Moynihan, Jeremy Piven, John Corbett, and Eugene Levy. Or Eugene Levy. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that last name, but that's okay. So, Eric, how about you start us off? What was your first experience with this movie? First experience with this movie, I actually went and saw it with my mom and sister. Uh, at a local movie theater when I when this film first came out and I just remember I think having seen the trailer on TV uh, beforehand and maybe just for something to do uh, my mom was like well let's go see this movie um, so I, I actually remember seeing it in theaters uh, with them but really liking it and a couple of years later after my first summer job, I, you know, was starting to get paid and, and amass a, a small DVD collection. And this was one of the first uh, DVDs that I bought. The first DVD I bought was The Matrix, of course. Um, Got to showcase the uh, the DVD. But Serendipity was, uh, yeah, one of the first ten, I think, that I got. And I, I just, I do watch the movie occasionally, and I, I have lots of just fond recollections of it. I, I, I really like this movie. Your first DVD was cooler than mine. I think mine was Baby Geniuses. So, <laughs> <laughs> really, I didn't know that had a DVD release. I didn't it did. Uh, Two thousand, I think, or nineteen ninety nine when it first came out, and I was around that age when I got my first DVD player. So, yeah, love it. Not not entirely proud of it, but it's a Christopher Lloyd movie. So it is. He was great in that, and I that was another film I saw in theaters. God, but I they made a sequel or two that I definitely did not see. Right. Well. Uh, regarding serendipity, I didn't know much about this movie. I knew it was a romantic comedy. And uh, the thing is, it's it's not starring the typical rom-com people, I don't think. Um, in fact, looking through their filmography today, I think I can pretty confidently say I had previously seen one movie apiece in John Cusack's and Kate Beckinsale's filmography. And that would be Anastasia starring Whoa. yeah, with, with uh, John Cusack. And uh, the other one was... Click, starring Kate Beckinsale and Adam Sandler. Well, first of all, that that is drastically low turnout. That that's a, such a, that's that's a criminally low number of of their films. I, I could name many more that you must see for each actor. I mean, Cusack has been in 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 nearly everything. Uh, Better off dead. He was most I'd say is is a great just eighties romp teen movie. Of course, everything he's done since then. Uh, <laughs> 
and Kate Beckinsale. Actually, this was my first film that I saw or can remember seeing Kate Beckinsale in. Um, and it may, have, I, I think I'm looking up her, um, she's, she's got, uh, credits back, you know, dating back early 90s, even before that. But I think this was one of her first mainstream films now that now come to think of it and then um click was 2006 and that was long after she had also starred in the aviator uh, with leo dicaprio van helsing with hugh jackman and of course what you should have already seen her in underworld uh <laughs> where she where she's the leading vampire vampiress celine right i think the underworld series is what most people sort of associate kate beckinsale with but I just had never seen them. Still haven't. So, yeah, well, maybe maybe one day we'll talk about those films. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we, we will see. But all that goes to say that I didn't really have any expectation for those actors. Even I, I mean, I know the name Molly Shannon. I, I've seen some of the things she's been in, and Eugene Levy, of course. But other than that, I really didn't know anybody in this cast list, and so it was nice going into a movie with a completely sort of fresh palette. You know, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Right. You don't get that very often. Um, mm. So I, I, I really did enjoy that. And aside from that, I just knew this was a rom-com. And, you know, Eric, I asked you if you were going to be able to see Lego Batman before seeing this movie. I'm not going to spoil the connection because, you know, there is a very strange, but there, there's a connection there between Lego Batman movie and this movie. And so as soon as you see that, you're going to have to let me know. I, I cannot fathom <laughs> what it might be. You teased this the other day. I'm like, I do not. I can't. I'm thrilled. I'm pleased. I hope it's like worthwhile. I hope you're not just shining me on, but I can't wait. <laughs> um, I hope it's substantial. Like, uh, I, I, I do, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. I can't wait. Uh, definitely going to see Lego Batman at my earliest convenience. <laughs> right. I, I don't want to spoil that for you or for anybody else on the show who hasn't seen Lego Batman yet. But, uh, once you do, I think there, it, the connection between that movie and this one is uh, going to make you laugh at least. Unbelievable. I'm looking very forward to it. That'll be great. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into it. What, what in the story do you like here, Eric? This movie is so different, I think, than your traditional romantic comedy. I mean, the, the humor in it, it it's, it's a very funny film, but none of it is at the expense of any of its characters, I think. And the, the endless wonder and awe in the premise itself right the idea that that fate exists and is actively almost overactively if you know depending on how closely you watch this film uh guiding us to find something like our soulmate and so it's 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 a very mushy romantic premise but i think it's executed in a way it's played straight it's executed in such a way that the universe itself, you know, in this film is like really a character. And I think that's captured quite well, just, just throughout the film. You really believe that these sort of minute happenstance occurrences could link up. And I think they make the case for, for fate, honestly, even, you know, not to sound too cheesy because again, with any of these films, you can, you can, just come across as 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 sounding cheesy and I'm 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 so worried about that but I love these characters and and honestly I think it's it's a different role for each of them too like uh John Cusack is is not just playing the John Cusack role Kate Beckinsale is not just playing the Kate Beckinsale role I think Kate in particular in this film has this 
she she really believes it, right? That this character who is so vulnerable or allow or allowing herself to be, you know, and and John Cusack's character to to a lesser extent too, they allow themselves to be swept up in this idea. And I, I think that it's really kind of crucial to the story seeing these characters behave in this way. You know, it's not without skepticism. They both at at, at different points lose faith and they both you know the the sort of main separation between them it's it's a couple of years between the sort of opener part of the movie and and the rest of the movie you know they they've they have the opportunity to show how these characters have changed or not and and so i i i think it's a really well acted film i agree um speaking to the the idea of fate you know the the rotten tomatoes critics consensus you know i'm not going to rely on rotten tomatoes for knowledge on whether a film is good or bad but the the consensus here is it's light and charming serendipity could benefit from less contrivances and i think that's sort of missing the point because you're right this this movie is about the idea or the notion of fate or the idea that that things that happen are meant to happen and there's a path that we're all sort of set out on in life and so i i i think again that rotten tomatoes summary sort of misses the point because i i agree with you it it doesn't ever feel purely contrived here it's trying to explore this idea of things happening for a reason and i appreciated that yeah contrivances is not any uh, yeah i i think that's the wrong way of looking at it well just out of curiosity what is the uh current tomato meter reading if you're still on the site it's at 58 percent. 58 okay well, um, I love this movie. <laughs> I, I know, I know the whole premise is right. Talk about your favorite movie. And I've done that with, with frequency as well. But to, but to come on and, and be able to talk about serendipity as my second time on feels, feels right. Because I think that this film is special and I want to remember it and I want to watch it and rewatch it. I was thrilled that it's currently available on Netflix instant. So, listeners of the show who have Netflix also can can just watch it and 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 you know experience it for yourself in addition to having listened to this this episode and and hearing us talk about it but it's really uh, a shame that the mainstream di- but, but uh, that's never as you said it's never really guided whether or not a movie's good for us so that's good yeah on cinescope we try and talk about a whole wide variation of films and this definitely fits into that mold i like that it's a rom-com that doesn't necessarily follow the typical rom-com trope which is couple meets they fall in love they have a falling out they get back together they get married live live happily ever after or whatever it is right that doesn't really happen in this movie in fact this movie is less about a straight-up romance than it is the pursuit of the romance or maybe even on a deeper level the pursuit of happiness because both of these people they meet at the beginning of the film and then they go on and they live their lives because they're not together and they find somebody else special in their lives but in finding somebody else special and getting engaged to them they start to realize you know maybe i'm not the happiest i could have been in this relationship and they start finding an excuse because it it is a long shot trying to find this person from however many years back and somebody that they just met once for a few hours even the the chances are slim and i think they both recognize that and more than trying to find each other they're trying to find an excuse to leave the relationship they're in does that make sense yeah absolutely 
I like that you said that too. And 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 interestingly, what you know, I, I was thinking about this. I was reading on um on IMDb the the trivia, and and it says uh, here that they really John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale only filmed together for a few days because their characters only see each other for a couple scenes. And so a lot of the film that's about the pursuit and, you know, you, you inhabit both of these characters world, the John Cusack and, and Jeremy Piven character. So John and, and Dean and Kate Beckinsale and Molly Shannon character searching and helping their, their, it's about those two character pairings, sort of their, their friendship and how the, the friends see them and how their own life view, you know, rubs off. But the actual John and Kate scenes are more than it feels like, but still apparently less in, you know, low and low enough in number that there were only a few days ever spent on set. And that also speaks to their chemistry, I think, because they, they really have good chemistry, in my opinion. Um, and you really believe the romance. You really believe that these characters would fall for each other for the reasons that they do. But it's just shocking. I mean, Actors can act, I guess. <laughs> uh, what else in the story do you like here, Eric? I, I love how robust the 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 world is in general. I mean, you, of course, there's all the little the little fate signs, which I'd love to talk more about at length. But even the the uh, tertiary characters and peripheral characters, even like Eugene Levy as the desk clerk. I would say is is secondary character or or tertiary, but peripheral characters such as uh, Sebastian Mignon, the guy who you know was like a co tenant with uh, Sarah back in I guess it was 1994. That guy and that scene with that guy when they're trying to discern you know trying to interrogate him is so funny and yet and it's so he is so uh, genuine. Uh, of of a character you really believe this person exists i guess he's this three-dimensional character right i really liked uh eugene levy's character for those reasons as well he he made me laugh uh for one but he was also sort of helpful in the same sense that the uh mr mignon was uh helpful as well he wasn't just a, a throwaway character who put them on the direction to the next step he sort of gave them information that placed them farther on that path well yeah the, the film co- sort of puts each clue up on a pedestal and i think the human clues where it essentially has these these character relationships that's what matters like the 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 i think the premise of fate being behind everything would fall flat if you didn't have it being supported by characters who you really feel like their very meeting and their interaction was fated. So for the fact that like uh, Molly Shannon's character too ends up being an old college friend of Hallie, who John's character is, you know, marrying, it's just another connection, but you totally, you love it because it it really is. It does seem like the path is clear because the characters are whole characters you believe their interactions were faded. Right. You've written in our show notes, setups and payoffs. So let's go over some of the setups and payoffs that are in this movie. Yeah. So just like any, I mean, it seems like uh, script writing 101. I know this was talked about when we had our frequency discussion. And it's also a big, uh, I think we were making the connection to Back to the Future as well. Right. The, those films, 
And because they deal with, deal with time travel too, but th- those films in general um, just have so many of these setups and payoffs. Uh, a character will say something, and later down the line, you know, half an hour, an hour later in the film, it will come back. And uh, with this film, it's particularly used to, I think, make the case for fate, but there's just so much of it. So each character, uh, Sarah and John, send off this item into the world. Jonathan Traeger writes his phone number down on a $5 bill. Sarah writes her number and info in the uh, in a first edition book. And so you have that uh, initially, but then you also have different locations later on. So the golf guy, for instance, that uh, Sarah runs into is from or is, is handing out flyers for the place where John just was sort of filming. Uh, it's the, it's the, it's the golf place where he's been filming some footage and where he was just the day before the wedding. So, you know, you have all of these different little things coming into play more than once. And some of them are more obvious than others. Right. The big one for me was the, uh, the purse, the Prada versus Prado. Um, mm. Watching the first time, you may think that scene where Eve is, buying a knockoff Prada purse on the, the side streets of New York um, might just be a throwaway. But mm-hmm. then she... Yeah, because that's something you can totally do in New York. Right, <laughs> you right. You can buy a, a cheap knockoff purse off the side of the street. You can. Right. And then they make the distinction there that Sarah's knockoff, she has a knockoff too, but hers actually says Prada, whereas the one Eve just bought says Prado. And so... So neither of them actually have a Prada purse. Right. but then later in the film towards the end of the film actually when sarah is on the flight home she pulls out the purse and oh it's the prado purse oh that's how that ties in got it and that's how she finds the five dollar bill that john signed his name and number on so many years ago and convinces her to jump off the plane and go find him Oh, and, and where did Eve get that $5 bill? It was at Serendipity. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. And uh, a couple more, the Cool Hand Luke poster. So the night they meet, they're ice skating, and, and Sarah's asking Jonathan, what, what is, uh, among other things, what his favorite movie is. He says Cool Hand Luke. In the future, I'm, I'm, it's, uh, she's running out. Um, it's after the, the band gig, and they're talking about their wedding dates. And uh, she just goes outside, I think, for a smoke. And she happens to see, yeah, that's it. She's trying to like light her cigarette or whatever. And she just happens to look in the window and there's a film festival going on and they're showing Cool Hand Luke. And there's the movie poster right in front of her. And she sees it and she recognizes it, sure. But it, it's just those, those little things, that little detail, uh, you know, micro details played out on the macro level to have our characters interacting with such tiny, minute occurrences and putting such weight in them. The big thing that sticks out to is a little sequence when Jonathan is first sort of remembering about Sarah. There's the the guy in the bicycle with the hollow notes. His hairdresser is, oh, the regular girl is is not here right now, but I'm Sarah. I'll, you know, I'll cut your hair. And he leaves. He just runs out. He says, no good. When he's at the golf range, there's a British woman named Sarah who, you, you know, he doesn't see from the front, but she saw him, Sarah, and it's just... It's this onslaught, this uh, entre- this onslaught of um, Sarah's. And even just her name, which is all he has to go on, is the hearing it again and again. It is this impetus for him to seek harder. And, you know, this... Have you ever watched How I Met Your Mother, Eric? Uh, I have not. 
No. Uh, well, this movie actually uh, sort of reminds me of a long form version of a particular episode where uh, Ted is at a wedding and he meets somebody and they keep their name secret from each other. And the, the, the idea is for them to have this one perfect night that can never be ruined because it's never going to go any further than this one perfect night. <laughs> and then eventually they try and chase each other down. And that, that seems almost exactly like what this movie is, except it's just on a much larger level. That's what I was thinking when I was watching because the earnestness behind John's character is very much like Ted in seeking out the woman for him, his soulmate. That's, that's sort of the whole idea of how I met your mother. The show is that Ted is just trying to find the one girl meant for him. And is constantly unsuccessful. But uh, in in this movie, John has found a woman, but he doesn't believe it's the one for him just yet. And so that that similarity there really sort of stuck with me as I was watching. Yeah, and I mean, uh, again, it's it's kind of about the layers in which that you that you choose to look when watching this film. There's the fact that Sarah's wedding ring uh, or engagement ring doesn't fit her at first, right? And and <laughs> so Lars. Lars screwed it up and even says to her, oh, you're not going to read, you know, too much into this, are you? After that grand romantic gesture of leaving all the rose petals and the box within a box and every box is wrapped in tissue paper. After all that, the wedding ring doesn't fit. That's a sign. <laughs> maybe the maybe even the absence of signs is a sign, <laughs> but that is a sign. They're not meant to be together. And it's it's it really you could just have fun with this film. It's sort of it's such a preposterous suggestion. Or is it? I think it makes a believer out of you. It might change your mind, you know? Well, let's talk about the characters just a little bit more specifically. So what what about John do you have to say? John is great. Jonathan Traeger as uh, a leading man. He's very, he's sort of every manny, but he has, he has passion. He has skill. He is still kind of, I want to say, wandering a little bit. He's got a successful job. And the, the woman is, is the next part that's going to complement his, his lifestyle. But I, I like his energy, I think I want to say. You know, and he really inspires his friend, Jeremy Piven's character, Dean, uh, which is obviously, you know, later in the film, Dean admits to it. But the relationship between John and Dean in the film is, is, is actually like my favorite character. And, and believe it or not, uh, which you, you might not know this, Chad, because, uh, you haven't seen other John Cusack films, but John Cusack and Jeremy Piven have played friends together in multiple films. They're friends in real life. Uh, so this, seeing this film without that knowledge and without seeing one of the other multiple films that they've played together in as friends would almost take you out of or, or take something from the uniqueness of seeing it, you know, and only this in this movie. Because I I love their friendship in this movie more more than all the other friendships I've seen. It's 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 just really like rewarding. You believe they they both care about each other and give each other you know give and take. So it's it's really special. Yeah, yeah. I think Jonathan, like you were talking about earlier, he's skeptical of this whole idea of fate, and then this relationship with his friend Dean. Um, Dean is sort of skeptical at the beginning too, because John voices this concern. You know, I keep hearing her name everywhere, and I just have to find this woman just to know that she's not the one I'm meant to be with. And Dean at first is skeptical, and he says, "No, no," and then he buys into it, partially because he 
I think he realizes how skeptical John usually is about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But remembering back to the obsession he had with it when it first happened and always checking the bookstores and all, all that kind of stuff, I, I think that the, the fact that he buys into John's obsession uh, really says a lot about their friendship and shows that he's willing to do whatever it takes to make sure his friend finds happiness. Yeah, and, 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 and here's something that resonates uh, real world-wise, too, which is that, you know, like you said, like, John still checks used bookstores, so much so that his wife, you know, that's the wedding present, is the, is the book that ends up being the book. Uh, but it's the idea that, you know, you meet this person, this other person, for just a couple hours, and they change your life. That's that's something that really happens in real life, even if it's not, you know, not even a romantic way. Chance encounters do occur. And, you know, you can have, based on just one conversation with somebody, I think, lasting effects and, and different outlooks on life based on, based on single conversations. I, I have to believe that that's possible. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, I could, I could think of examples of when it's happened to me. So the idea that, that John as a character was open-minded enough, it helps when you have this smoking hot British babe, uh, <laughs> across the table from you saying it's real. But I, you know, knowing, for instance, that they did in fact choose the same elevator floor, and I, you know, the characters never talk about it. Stuff happens, and and they never meet at the Waldorf there. But knowing that they pushed that button together, that same button, you really feel the same desperation. I think that John feels when it doesn't work out because he didn't believe in fate to begin with. But then he kind of, you know, was was really thinking about it. And then when it then when it then when it didn't happen and he couldn't find her ever again, that part of him that holds on, that part of him that wants to believe, that's the driving force of him being the main character of the of the protagonist. He's he wants to believe in 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 something like that. And it's the fact that he does believe in it is ruining his current relationship or you know it's not allowing him to progress to the point where he can truly move on move forward um even though presumably he has proposed and is you know just a couple days away from his wedding but it's it's sort of like it's sort of like both characters are settling or you know not 100% acknowledging because how can you it's absurd to think that they would never get married until they find each other again you know, how they feel. Right. Now, what about Sarah specifically? Sarah's great. Um, and Sarah's probably one of my favorite characters in, in any, well, certainly in any romantic movie, but I just, I really love the way Kate Beckinsale plays her. You, you have so much, you have a big range of emotion here through her interactions, uh, with Lars, even like when she's upset, she, can bear the burden with, I think, with Lars. Like, Lars really brings out a lot of the range in, in Sarah. She's not just this innocent, you know, believer who is, you know, has such a you know, bleeding heart about everything. She's intelligent. She's smart. She wants to, again, she wants the happiness. She wants to uh, to be flexible enough and vulnerable uh, vulnerable enough of a person in general to see the signs because if you're too much of like a stoic hard rock you you won't even see them that's her whole philosophy she believes in something that's so beautiful but she's also very caring think about what she does for a profession she's a, a psychologist and i think in her interactions with 
Lars, you know, when he does disappoint her, she is still able to be caring towards him. And she is still able to, you know, be as flexible as she can without, without breaking, without truly doing something that she does not want to be doing. She is giving and she's a very generous character. She's a very generous person. And, and again, speaking to her being fully developed, not without flaws. Like what she initially tricks Eve into going back to New York, saying it's for her birthday, you know, but it, 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 it's ultimately she owns up to it and you can see and hear and feel why, uh, she does what she does. And so I, 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 th- I think it's a lot of range there. Well, to contrast with John, Sarah does sort of the opposite of John, whereas John starts to sort of come further into believing in the idea of fate and destiny and all those kind of things, she actually becomes a little bit more skeptical. We see her after we've jumped forward in time, she's being a therapist again, and she's talking to this this young man who's saying, no, this girl at the party, I didn't say anything to her. Now I'm, now I'm never going to see her again. And she was a, she was my soulmate. Yeah. And it, it's sort of the same predicament that John has found himself in. But she finds herself giving the advice of, there's plenty other women out there that you're going to be happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the antithesis of the idea of fate. And she she even acknowledges, you know, maybe I'm starting to sort of believe that myself too. Yeah. And so you, you see the opposite side of the coin. Yeah, for sure. Uh, any other characters specifically you want to talk about? Um, I do want to talk about Heli and Lars uh, because the, the it's such an interesting discussion in any romantic comedy to talk about the characters who lose. Um, right? I mean, essentially, John, Jonathan and Sarah find each other, have each other, but what about Lars and what about Hallie? Because there's these two perfectly fine people. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Like, Lars is a, is, is a really cool guy. He's got a successful or becoming successful music career. He's talented. Uh, you know, and, and we, the film robs us, uh, in its, in its brief runtime, robs us of the final goodbye between Sarah and Lars. And, you know, to, to, I guess a similar extent, we do not actually see Jonathan and Hallie calling off the wedding, but we do get to see quite a bit more of Hallie being upset and Hallie being concerned for her marriage and for your, for her pending marriage and concerned for her friends. But, you know, these characters are, are so fleshed out. You do, I think you do care about them and you do, I think, feel bad for Hallie and you, you may feel bad for Lars while watching this film. I agree. I don't really have much else to say about those characters specifically, but uh, how about we talk about Dean just a little bit more yeah. uh, for a second? Because Dean has his own interesting arc where at the beginning of the film, or at the beginning of the time jump forward, he's giving the best man speech at the sort of wedding dinner. And what a funny speech. It what is. What a funny it is. speech. And we like the guy. And then John is talking with Hallie about how oh, I, he and his wife are so happy together. You never see them fight. Never They're just so perfect fight. together. And yeah. then come out comes out later in the film, oh, she moved out a couple days ago. We're not together anymore. And mm-hmm. it really adds a new depth to Dean as a character in going along with John's search because he has sort of lost his chance at happiness in the moment. He he found somebody who ultimately maybe not is not right for him. And so in helping John on this search for his soulmate, he is helping somebody else maybe not fall into the same fate as him. Well, I think what it is too, though, is that maybe Courtney is Dean's soulmate, but, but I think the whole point and what he was saying to John on the, on the airline was, 
you know, this, this mysterious, this mysticism was lacking in their relationship. Just the idea, just the kind of rhetoric, uh, when you tell somebody that, that they're your soulmate. I mean, if you shouldn't do that unless you really believe in, you know, you should always right. be as, as honest with your significant other as, as you possibly can. But the idea that just in the greater romanticism, that aspect, to use Dean's word for it, died uh, in that relationship. We see him, I think one of the last shots of him in the film is buying some roses to take to Courtney. He's going to try and get her back. So he's by no means written her off. No, no. But there was a breakup and they and they do or were fighting often and there was a period of discomfort. It also says more about both Dean and Courtney, but also about Hallie and Jonathan. What kind of friends, even though they've they've broken up, probably can't stand each other right now because it's that anger part of the, you know, just immediate post breakup, are are still banding together and coming to this wedding, right? And Dean is the best man and Courtney is still a presence at this wedding because they and uh Dean says why, they don't want to, you know, upset or they don't want to um, cause any kind of concern and ruin their big day. So they're doing it for Jonathan and Hallie. They're still putting up appearances and, you know, all of this. And that, and that's ultimately a very nice thing to do. But it, it also speaks to how much they care for Jonathan and Hallie and how they're both characters who can be loved and can get, you know, they seem to have just such nice family, just such nice friends. And I, I think that's kind of a really heartwarming part of this movie. I agree. And maybe I, I misspoke. I didn't mean that maybe him and Courtney aren't exactly right for each other, but they're they're out of happiness with each other in yeah. the moment. And so uh, Dean is helping John to find what is ultimately going to make him happiest. And that helps him to realize, I am at my happiest when I'm with Courtney. And so I'm going to buy these roses and go off and apologize and try and make amends. Exactly. Right, right. So I, I, I like that part of his character. Yeah, he's going to f- follow his own signs, as it were. And also, I mean, we talked about peripheral characters before, but the, the leasing office temp guy played by, uh, I looked him up now on, on IMDb, the actor's Leo Fitzpatrick. Um, but that brief scene where Dean, who <laughs> just goes off on the tirade about pimple-faced youth, uh, you know, who's, who's, <laughs> what does he say? Owning companies that sell no concrete product, this, that, the other thing, talking his way into having this kid, do something that's actually not, you know, it's, he's going to break, it breaks the rules. Right. Uh, it break, it breaks serious privacy rules, actually, to release that sort of information. Even just to give somebody's name out, you know, breaks some rules. And, and, but the way that Dean is there to be able to assist Jonathan and he's able to lend the crucial, the, you know, he's the missing puzzle piece a couple times, right? He, he has the knowledge. He has the skill. He's a good friend who's who is who is able to be useful uh, of use to Jonathan. Right. Well, any other characters? I think that's mostly it. Um, I, I it is it is important to note uh, because I think quite a lot of climax of this movie depends on remembering that uh, Sarah has a sister. Right. You just meet her briefly, and there's so much else going on. Lars Lars's band is just finished on stage, and then. You, you, it's totally set up that they're going to be house sitting, uh, while Sarah's, you know, away with Lars and all that. But it, I think when essentially knowing that Jonathan and, and Dean fly all the way there and then find 
Sarah's sister and her boyfriend in an intimate setting. Uh, of course, Jonathan thinks it's really Sarah. That part of the plot doesn't really connect necessarily, but it's essentially on the plane back, Jonathan cancels the wedding anyway. So you don't really need to see that revelation later that, oh, that was my sister. It's just one of those things where, you know, the, the film was coming to its climax and it's like, well, we, you know, we'll just, we'll just explain this away. But I mean, everything, everything from Sarah's sister, who seems very pleasant and her sister's boyfriend, who seems really cool. And the landlord, for instance, you know, again, no, no small character. The landlord is great. And, and he manages to be, to be in more than just one scene. Sarah interacts with him when she's trying to find him, you know, and stop the wedding. So I, I love all the characters, man. Agreed. Um, well, let's talk real quick about the music because like most films in this sort of genre, a lot of the focus is more on the pop music than on the actual background score. So we don't get a whole lot of Alan Silvestri's score in this film, um, but the moments, the the specific moment that I really noticed it was when John is laying on the the ice skating rink. Yes, and it's very guitar. It, well, it is entirely guitar, pretty much. Yeah, and I really, really like that. It's it's as you were saying earlier, it's different than Alan Silvestri's sort of normal fare. It doesn't yeah, sound like, like um, Lilo and Stitch, or it, it's like very Back muted. To the yeah. yeah, it's um like dun 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 dun, and it's just like the same repet you know repetition of a chord, but it's um it's 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 soft, it's sympathetic, it's exploratory. The, I actually I'm going to I'm going to find where I can buy the actual Alan Silvestri score for this film because I I love it. I mean it's this film has quite a lot of music in it that's, uh, you know, pop music, like you were saying, covers of existing, you know, songs, also old standards as well, like in the opening credits, you know, lots of really great music, but Alan Silvestri's score is where it really, I think, opens up the universe. Every other song is selling the love angle, and, and Alan Silvestri was essentially hired to bring in the, 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 the fate, you know, aspect of it. Right. And looking at the soundtrack, I think there is one track on here by Alan Silvestri called Fast Forward. Yeah, that's not my favorite. I actually just, I had to open iTunes to listen to it. Um, that's a more, that's a less subtle part. I'm trying to remember where it appears in the film, but at least that made the soundtrack. I felt pretty good about that, but. Well, there is a YouTube video that I found called Romantic, Serendipity Romantic Ending. And I'll actually link it in the show notes because it does highlight the uh, guitar score by Alan Silvestri in that moment. Oh, good. Fantastic. So anything else to say regarding the music? Unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of it to talk about since we don't have like a full release. Uh, yeah, Lars is, um, I, I just, I, we didn't talk enough about Lars, that music, <laughs> that music, uh, the, first of all, the music that he's playing on stage in, in live with the band is a song called from rush home with love by a band called mint Royale. That song is real, which is fantastic. I'm glad it wasn't just made for this movie, or if it was, that it, I mean, it's, it's featured so prominently in this film, but apparently that's a real band and a different song. So, uh, definitely, you know, I would encourage anyone to listen to that. And that, that instrument, which I, I forget what it's called. He mentions it in the, in the film too. Like, uh, I think it starts with a C. That instrument is so exotic and interesting. And the song, not to mention the music video with the knockoff Alec Guinness is such a rich part of this movie. I think it really elevates the 
the the your typical above the 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 your typical romantic comedy. Right, he's sort of like a knockoff Eastern Kenny G. Yeah, I mean, you really have I think a lot of depth in that character. I mean, they shot this music video for this guy's character to run around in playing this. You know, it, it's so much more than they needed to do for the to, for fleshing out these characters, but they did it. And I love it. So I love, I love, the, you know, his conversations with him and his producer, uh, and moving this tour back and scheduling. And you think from a script standpoint, oh yeah, they just need to introduce the conflict so that the, you know, she can feel like this wasn't meant to be. Great, great, great. But it's done so well. Uh, so that, that, that song and, and really that music in general is a really interesting touch to this film. Well, let's talk about, uh, themes and relevance. So the big one is the idea of destiny and fate. Um, you know, for me as a Christian, I, I like to think that my life isn't entirely random mm. and that someone out there sort of has this ultimate plan for me and for my life. And so I really identified with um, maybe not the idea of uh, seeking out. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. No, I like what you said there. Um, it's it's really I, we can choose to see signs anywhere we want. And it it doesn't mean that they're really there. Right, like if we try too hard, and this is a, a struggle that the characters uh, in the film deal with, looking too hard. But I would be completely lying if I said that I, at any point in my life, did, or at some points in my life, did not feel as though I were seeing signs. And I think it's there's there's a balance, right? There's a delicate balance between making change in your life that's based on something that you feel is good and right, and doing sort of a trust fall into um into the world and being perceptive and being open and being vulnerable i think are the themes of this this film you ultimately if you're in a bad situation you should get yourself out of it but then you know if you're looking for for what to do next it's okay if you don't know the answer and it's okay sometimes to rely on first of all the the love of friends and family but also you know, take a chance once in a while. Take a chance on 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 a flyer that you get handed out on the street randomly, because it is funny. You know, we have sayings like "What a small world it is" when you meet somebody who it turns out was a a long term mutual friend of, or you have a mutual friend, right? And and your friend knew this person, but you did not know this person. Your friend knows you. It's just like that. So these things do occur in 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 the real world and i i think that this film kind of just it's titillating how it just plays with that idea of leaving yourself open or or opening your mind if you're if you're not typically the kind of person who is open right i i think that if we if we look at the signs in our life and act on act on them not all of them but i think some of them definitely have potential to lead to better paths for our lives and we just it's really just about taking the chance and taking that first step and acting on uh, what you think is the right thing for you. I mean, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell a story right now. I just, uh, I heard this again over, uh, over Christmas. So just two months ago, but my cousin Andrew and his uh, now wife went to the same college for undergrad uh, for four years and did not know each other. They lived in, in dorms that were like, uh, you know, build, uh, just the next building over. For four years in undergrad, never met, never knew each other. Ended up going for their master's, graduate school, same school. 
different school from where they did undergrad, but same school as in they both went to the same graduate school, Penn State. And they also now were working and living, uh, again, very close proximity to each other, went to the same undergrad, went to the same graduate school, ended up meeting online on like Match.com or a dating site. It later transpires that they had mutual friends who, who, you know, who knew each other and knew them separately. Also transpires that, well, holy crap, you know, we're together. We go to go together very well. It turns out we could have known each other and maybe even should have known each other six years ago, eight years ago. Right. Because they were in such close physical proximity. Now they're married. It's, it's stuff like that. It happens in real life, man. I agree. I mean, my, my own parents, I think, went to a Ronnie Millsaps concert or something before they met each other. They were, it just came out, uh, whenever they had, did start dating, they looked back and, oh, we were both at the same concert at the same time. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are those sort of chance encounters that happen in real life. And this movie isn't necessarily saying that everything happens for a reason. It, I think it's just saying that sometimes life comes at you and if, oh, I'm starting to sound like Ferris Bueller. You sound exactly like Ferris Bueller's <laughs> like, go into it, keep going. No, no I, I just mean that life happens and sometimes you have to make decisions that are going to introduce you to some people or lead you away from some people. And we just have to be open to it happening and looking at taking that next step forward. Yeah, I don't think this film says it says or does anything that's offensive. Again, I feel bad for Hallie and Lars, of course, because I like them as characters. But I think that this is a very perfectly innocent, innocuous look at at a relationship that may or may not have been faded. I, I I love the I love that it's just it's just meant as a suggestion. It's just like hey, watch this film and think about it. That's what all films. That's what all entertainment should be. It's not over fluff. It's not too light. I, I think it's there's some substance here and. You know, like I said, you connect it to your own personal life. There are moments, either you find it in, in religion and believing in destiny and believing a grand scheme, a greater plan, and you relate it to your own life. And, and there's going to be these moments where you, where you, something similar has already happened to you. And so I, I, I but, but, you know, these other romantic comedies, I don't know how many of them would, would even be bold enough to talk about something like Soulmate. You know, more often than not, like the slapstick gets in the way. I, you know, I, I just don't, you know, these, this, these epic love tales. I, there's no film quite like this. I mean, ultimately, I think it is just about examining your life, asking yourself if you're truly happy, and taking the active steps needed to make yourself happy. Mm-hmm. Because I think what, what the, the sort of underlying story that happened with John and Sarah here is that they both realized that they weren't entirely happy with their current relationships. And so they look to their past for alternatives and that leads them on this path to finding each other. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's look at it another way. Pretend that there's no fate in this movie and pretend that, Jonathan does get married to Hallie. It is conceivable at some point in the future that Hallie will meet Eve again, right? They're old college uh, friends, or they knew each other in college. It's conceivable they'd bump into each other maybe at a college reunion, say if that's a thing. Sarah might have had uh, some time off that night. Maybe Eve invited her along. Boom, Jonathan and Sarah meet again. Uh Uh-oh, now they're both married. Right, right, and, and and it's such a, a a terrifying real world circumstance. What happens? Do they hook up? 
because they used to believe they were soulmates. But, you know, it's such a, if you follow it through to like the logical, this is not safe. We have to just cut off our marriages because we're not happy conclusion. You get sort of a worse situation in the end. It could, there could have been some infidelity and some very serious consequences if the movie were not you know, a romantic comedy and just allowed that to see that through. But these characters realize and are true to themselves that they're not happy. And they call off the wedding. Jonathan calls off the wedding. Dean says to him, maybe you're laying here because you don't want to be standing somewhere else. Boom. He does the right thing. He calls off the wedding. And that's, that's kind of the other thing is being a good human, even to the people that it's not going to work out with. Just be, be a good person. Be generous. Be honest. It's, it's the best thing you can do. Definitely. Uh, any other final thoughts, Eric? That should be about it. Um, I, I just, I love, uh, the opening sequence as well, which sets the whole thing in motion. It's sort of, um, I want to say Rube Goldberg esque, but there's, uh, the department store. We sort of see the inner workings of the department store. You know, a pair of gloves happens to be, and how did it get there? There's another whole story of how they got there, but there's this sort of a, there's sort of a long take where these gloves are discovered beneath two sweaters and the Bloomingdale's employees show them back downstairs. Now that, that, you know, seconds before then, they had been sold out, right? This is the only pair of black cashmere gloves in the store, appears on the shelf just as Jonathan and Sarah separately, who don't know each other, have never interacted, both happen to see it, right? They, they both, there's a very limited window of time in which they both would have looked over and both could have seen that there were gloves there because moments later, right, that third guy tries to come and, and take it. So it's just all about timing the way that, uh, to the music, the, the gloves are slowly making their way downstairs. And it really sets the tone, I think, for a very gentle breeze of fate. Fate is not, you know, sort of in your face as much as it is at times later in the film. This is just a nice, pleasant setting, opening setting, and with the clouds going by and the music. I, the, the opening of this film, I think, is very palatable. And ultimately, this movie, I, I like I said, I liked it. I think it was different. It's not the typical uh, rom-com formula, I don't think. It, it mm-hmm. It's a fresh take on that formula. And as I said earlier, it's really not even a romantic film. It's it's about the the pursuance of romance and of happiness, and I, I I really appreciated that it was it was different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But knowing its tomato uh, rating, it also seems fitting that I should be talking about it because you know I like the underdog films. Agreed, and I mean the critics or critics exist to share their opinions of films and. That's all they are, opinions. And so there's, when we come to Cinescope, we're talking about our films that make us happy and that we enjoy talking about. And so this, even though it's maybe not a critically acclaimed film, that doesn't mean it's not a good film because just as many people may like it as dislike it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I was glad to talk about it with you tonight, Eric, uh, because it, it it is what I would call a good film. I enjoyed watching it and we'll probably revisit it again in the future. Mm-hmm. So, I think that wraps up the official 29th episode of Cinescope. Thank you again, Eric, for joining me on the show tonight. 
Thank you for having me back. Uh, come episode 54 or so, I'd love to be back again. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. We will look into that for sure. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash podcast and at CinescopePod on Twitter. Please consider going to iTunes, rating, reviewing, even subscribing, uh, sharing it with your friends. And if you have feedback or ideas, you can email at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a movie that you like that maybe isn't entirely critically well acclaimed but you think is amazing Thank you. then let me know and we will talk about it now eric where can people find you online people can find me over on twitter mostly uh at spielerman s-p-i-e-l-e-r-m-a-n that's the best place and then from there you'll find my um like an instagram account but i'm most i'm mostly on twitter and again the podcasts that i host uh mugglecast uh, as well as Alohomora and the podcast I edit for Improv Star Trek on Twitter or Improvised Star Trek Podcast. Uh, every fifth episode uh, was edited by me, but they're really just very smart, very hilarious cast of people. You, you'll love the show. You don't need to know anything about Star Trek to enjoy it. So definitely I would plug that. Everybody check it out. Awesome. The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. <laughs> I'm glad you like that, Eric. <laughs> and then on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information, all the weird usernames can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Eric, for being on the show and talking with me about a movie you love. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me, Chad. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 29. I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 30. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.